0: Welcome everyone to the Manchester Green New Deal podcast. I'm Adam Williams and here tonight is the lady that brings the show some much-needed credibility. Hey, Lucy. Welcome everyone to the Manchester Green New Deal podcast. I'm Adam Williams and I'm here tonight with the lady that brings the show some much-needed credibility, Dr Lucy Burke. Lucy, how are
1: you? <laughs> I am all right.
0: Yeah, and can you believe we're in season three of the podcast?
1: You know Season
0: what? three. I can't believe we're in season three of the podcast. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Like, it was on the, uh, the latest show there, it got released and it said season three, and I was like, what? So, we've been doing it a while, but hey, got a great guest tonight, so let's crack on. Okay, now, for the most part, social media is a hellscape of conspiracies, hot takes, and trolling. But every now and again, a little gem is found, and it is where I first found tonight's guest, Sam Knights. What impressed me about Sam is that he's not only an astute commentator on climate events, but often notices important details that others don't. But social media does not make of the man, and I was not surprised to find later that he's also an activist and a writer who explores the topics of imagination, revolution, and in his own words, the end of the world. Sam, a warm welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Lucy. Great to have you with us, pal. Okay, Sam, so can you tell your audience a little bit about yourselves for those that don't know you, but also as well, how you got involved in the climate movement and also as well, what I'd like to ask the guest is, when was the moment that you realized that sort of climate breakdown was not only an important thing, but so important that you were willing to to sort of dedicate parts of your life to it?
2: Yeah, sure. So I'm an actor and writer. That's my day job. And... I've come to the climate movement quite recently, actually. So I, in 2018, I I basically had a breakdown about climate change induced by the uh, IPCC report, the special report on 1.5 degrees warming, um, which I think led to so many different things, right? The ramifications of that report, I think, is still being felt now. It was a real wake-up call for many of us in West. Of course, many people in the global south had been calling upon us to act with the urgency that was necessary for, for decades. And we had ignored it. And I was one of the people that had ignored it. And that impelled me to go and actually read about this. Um and I read This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. And it was the first time that for me someone had articulated it in a way that I could understand using left-wing language for want of a better way that was my way in right like for me up until that point climate change had just been about polar bears floating on icebergs and whilst that you know there was something emotionally moving about that i must admit for me and speaking very personally we all come to this in in very different ways and it's very valid to come to this from an animal rights perspective for me that that was never something that had mobilized or energized me and as soon as someone shook me and and forced me to realize that this was about human beings and that this was a justice issue that was for me when it all suddenly hit and it really was it was just one of those moments where you you realized that for so long you had been very consciously actually you know i don't want to make an, an excuse myself very consciously ignoring one of the grossest injustices of our age and that this injustice was, of course, interconnected with the crisis of capitalism and the various crises that we're now seeing in the 21st century. And as soon as I realized that, I think, you know, like many emotional reactions to the climate crisis are, of course, valid and we all feel it differently and in different parts of our body and our mind and our heart. Uh, for me, it was, it was guilt. I remember feeling enormous waves of guilt just quite physically roll through me and knowing that I needed to do something about this, right? And so I looked at the various things that were on offer to you as sort of supposed solutions, all the personal change things, which I've now started to do in my life. And I've still got a wild, little way to go, but you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm along that path. I looked too at the kind of capitalist solutions to the crisis, the various charity solutions to the crisis. And none of these really made sense to me in terms of the the scale of what we were facing, right? And maybe I had a little advantage in the fact that I woke up quite late because for me, suddenly it was just you're being thrown straight into the emergency. And so it required an emergency solution. And the only thing, the, the, the only group that I found giving a proportionate response to that crisis at the time, which was 2018, there's a very small group advocating for direct action policies and they were based in Stroud um, and had just moved to Bristol um, and they were called Extinction Rebellion. And I reached out to them and said, look, if you ever want my flat as a meeting place, you are more than welcome to come and use it um, if you ever want to do anything in London. Um, and I think the next week, 10 people turned up at my door and we organised the first ever Extinction Rebellion protest in London. So that was my Introduction to the climate movement. It was like being thrown headfirst into it, um, and I was incredibly naive. And I, like, politically and as an activist, um, I was incredibly naive and didn't really know what I was doing. And I learned so much just through doing it. You know, like I, as I said at the top of the show, I'm not an, I'm, I'm not a academic. I'm, I'm not a specialist. I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm just an activist, and that's been how I've approached this issue and, and come to it. And I've since left Extinct Rebellion. And I'm sure we can talk about all of that kind of stuff. Um, but that was, that was my kind of learning, my education, if you like.
1: Had you been involved in political activism before or was this like the first, the first activism you'd ever been involved in?
2: I, I, was, I was arguing about this with someone the other day because I was trying to convince an old friend that I had recently become political. And I think what I meant by that was, like, politically active. But I've always been political. I, I joined the Labour Party in 2015 in order to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. I've always been a member of the kind of, like, socialist left. Um, but I, to, to, be, to be honest with you and myself, I've, no, I've never been active in the way that I've been active for the last three, four years.
0: Yeah, some of the things you said... There's some really resonated with me now. I'm a bit older than yourself, um, so um, I've kind of been in the environment movement for, for over ten years now. Um, but when you mention about Naomi Klein, now Naomi Klein was someone that I used to read when I when I wasn't environmentally conscious, um, and a lot of people forget about people like Naomi Klein and George Monbiot. They used to write really hard hitting radical political books. Uh, Naomi Klein, I think her first book was a book called No Logo, which talks about the sweatshops and, yeah. and branding and stuff like that. And she was definitely one of these people where I saw a break with someone I really respected and was looking at from a sort of a, you know, a radical political perspective, and not even thinking about the environment. She sort of gradually started talking about environmental issues, uh, very similar to George Mumbi. And then all of a sudden, it was like that's all he talks about, and it, and it was almost like. For me, to, to be a, a, a true radical, you, you've, got to, you've got to face what's in front of you. So I, my, my blood and my bones is all about revolutionary old left-wing politics, yeah, Che Guevara and all that, yeah, and that is the path I thought I was going down. But, and, and you know, I'll see what you think about this, but, you know, loving symbolism and loving sort of the romanticism of a movement and stuff, is not the same as being a true revolutionary, is it? So I had to change to the reality that was in front of me and in front of my kids. And that was the environment movement. They are, we are now at the forefront of what should be revolutionary change. And um, so, you know, I know you've talked about Jeremy Corbyn before as well, and that was sort of your gateway into, into politics. And obviously you're an actor and you're a writer. So, how do you balance sort of the, your political and your artistic sort of skills and and, and beliefs and loves and to make like a, a full, a fully rounded activist?
2: I mean, that's really—it's really hard. I d- to, just on your first point, I think that's 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 key. That so many of us have been doing that leap in the last few years and the le- last decade or so from moving to the left to be explicitly now calling ourselves eco-socialist and being a part of both the climate movement and the labor movement. And in terms of those bridges that so many of us are building between those two movements, you know, this is where the struggle is right now. And both of those movements can learn from one another. And I don't know about you, Adam, you know, and I'm sure Lucy, you're exactly the same, right? And that we're, we're all doing this work, and I think it can feel quite lonely some of the time. Like, I spend a lot of my time in Zoom meetings with climate activists, where they go, where's the labor movement? Why aren't they turning up to this? Why aren't they putting their bodies on the line? And then I'm in meetings with trade unions and momentum activists, and they say, where's Extinction Rebellion? Why aren't they on the picket lines? Why aren't they turning up with their flag? You know, there, there, are, there is so much potential here. It feels a little bit like movements can flirt with one another, right? like they're just tentatively dipping their foot into being friends, into extending that hand of solidarity. And at the moment, we're at a really key juncture where we need to knit the socialist and the eco definitively together, because it's all very well and good. People like us opining on podcasts about our own ideology and being able to put in incredibly articulate terms what exactly our eco-socialist utopia looks like. But until we do that on the ground, you know, it, 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 it would be impossible to achieve. So, you know, first of all, like, thanks for doing what you're doing. And it, it's, it's brilliant that so many people are connecting those different threads. Um, personally, and maybe this is related to, I, I find it really hard. Like I, I find it really tough to balance all of these different parts of life. Um, it's impossible to continually live your life in like a revolutionary state of fervor or, 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 or even less it's, in, it, it's impossible to even dedicate I think the time that is necessary to put into or that seems that is necessary to put into activism at the moment in the you know we all have things that we need to do in our lives we all need to take the bins out and cook dinner and hug our mothers and you know do we have important things that we need to be getting on with as well as the revolution um, and balancing those things can be difficult I think f- for me, I have to keep on reminding myself, and I'm aware that this might sound like an excuse, but I think i I think I believe it, and it's that the the work that I do is also part of that story so as a writer and an actor, I'm interested in creating art that creates change and that inspires people to act and telling stories that make people understand and you know just five minutes ago I was telling you about how a book had totally changed my life right and that's no exaggeration it it it, I I read that book and then my life changed and I want to tell stories like that I want to change people's lives like that and change the world right (laughs) and as an aspiration I think you know these two things can fit together so that's how I do it that's how I have to keep on reminding myself that that there is value in and of art as itself as its own ends um but Everybody has their, their different solutions to that, for
1: sure.
0: Yeah, and you know what, I was, I was reading one of your uh, essays recently, and you start off the essay with the question, how hard should you try to prevent global catastrophe, which I thought was a really fascinating question to explore. And I'm wondering if it kind of relates to this, you know, how much are we expected to do in the face of, a, of the apocalypse? So, you know, how does that sort of uh, feed into to how you live and, and, and your activism and, and such like? I think what I was driving at a little bit in that
2: piece was, I've been thinking a little bit about that, that old, um, quite hackneyed Gramsci quote now, which is like pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And thinking about those two parts of oneself that you bring into activist spaces, in that very often we feel the need to wrench the head from the heart a little bit. And we go, well, my head is telling me that strategically We are in this place at the moment and these possibilities are open to us. And if we use these tactics to achieve these ends, this might be possible. And your heart all of the time is going, no, no, you need to do this faster and you need to do this now and you need to be on the streets night after night after night. And And if you don't, you're a failure. Right. And, And contending with both of those parts of yourself as an activist, I think, can be extremely difficult. The both the intellectual and the emotional. And then you have the kind of like the, the Raymond Williams corrective to that the kind of to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And that really sometimes the only solution to that is to try and just concentrate on what where the optimism lies, where the hope is, and to keep on acting with good intentions within yourself. I feel like a lot of the time at the moment I'm I, I I'm kind of pleading with people to think about strategy. I, you know, it's 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 odd, but I think one of the slightly embarrassing things that we all do as activists is like develop little catchphrases. Cause when we're part of democratic movements, we have the same conversation over and over again. And in order to persuade people of things, we need to put forward our point again and again. And so we come up with these little shorthands, these little catchphrases. And one of mine for the last year has just been, we need to focus on strategy, we need to focus on strategy. I, I, I think it's brilliant that there are so many books now about exactly what a Green New Deal looks like. But unless we have the strategy for achieving the Green New Deal, the Green New Deal is always going to just be in the realm of books. In order to kind of correct that thinking a little bit in and of myself, it's also important to remind oneself as an activist that you can't do everything. Even though we might feel the crisis on the level of the individual, you know, we might internalize the external, we might become depressed or anxious. You can't resolve these crises on the level of the individual. You have to do that as the collective. You have to trust in the movement. You have to trust in the power of collective action across time. And that requires uh, a different shift in the way that you start thinking about your own approach.
1: I think one of the things is that, you know, individuals can't do everything either. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, so you yeah. can't be, um, and, and people have different strengths and skills that they bring, but I think it's about understanding the relationship between those things. And, you know, when Ads was talking about, you know, that there's this kind of romantic side of things, this kind of emotional side of things, mm-hmm. and then there's mm-hmm. the, the reality. I, I I, think one of the things that we tend to n- not address perhaps Sort of, or not give the respect it deserves, is the emotional side of things. I actually think yep, that the yep. kind of em- emotional investment that people have in change, or, or the ways in which you can be, a kind of persuaded or carried by, something you've seen or something that really captures, you know, mm-hmm. a, you know, a phrase or um, or an image that really captures things for you is is, is why art has such a powerful role to play as well in kind of in 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 sort of in social movements why it's so it's it's so important um and you know it's interesting that you come to this from an arts-based background and and I mean that's my background as well that's what that's what that's what I do too that idea of 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 just using something to try and and actually shift other people because I think the other thing is that there's activists and there's activists talking to activists and then there's other people who you know I see on um on on kind of what you know sort of whatsapp groups around me complain about you know congestion charges or whatever (laughs) do you know what I mean and you, you know so there's where we are and then there's where everybody else is and there's the kind of obligation we have to move everybody else's thinking on and how we do that and that's why it'd be interesting to know what you think about something like don't look up which I saw at the weekend um you know just as as a kind of as a clunky way of trying to draw people's attention to something that we're living with as an emergency but which so many other people aren't or don't seem to be recognizing as the absolute emergency that it is
2: yeah yeah I I, yeah I I think I'd say two things to that I mean I totally agree and you know, I think we also, by the way, need to focus on the good parts of the emotional as well as the bad parts of the emotional, right? because, like I know I definitely have a tendency to talk about the amount of people who are burning out or who are depressed at the moment, and actually the, 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 there are two sides of being emotional right and and sorry i 'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but but I think this is uh, an important thing for people who aren 't active in movements to hear, and that's before I became a climate activist i didn't cry <laughs> and i know that sounds like a very toxic male thing to say but it's 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 true like i didn't i didn't physically cry when i was sad and as soon as i started doing activism i i cried at things and i was reflecting the other day on on why that was and i think something fundamentally within me has changed over the last 3 years i think i have become more emotional. I think I have become more caring. I think I have b- become more interested in other people and their lives. And I think the emotional richness, which activism, which being part of a movement, which being part of a community as well, right? Because that's, that's also what it is. And in the 21st century, we have such a deficit of genuine community. Community is also one of these spaces that is being encroached upon by capitalism. To be part of that thing and to really throw yourself into it, at such a productive and beautifully emotional thing. And there is so much good that comes out of that. To be at the heart of a protest and to feel like you're tasting the future on the tip of your tongue, right? There is nothing more magical, more captivating than that experience. And yes, that brings with it the sorrow, the pessimism of looking around and going, why aren't things better yet? Why aren't things better right now? But for that taste, for those experiences, to be able to connect in the way that you connect with other people, I think, you know, it's all worth it. Um, So that's my kind of tangent about emotion. With, With Don't Look Up, I think it's... I mean, OK, well, first of all, it's, it's fantastic that these stories are, ge- are getting into the mainstream, right? Like the, the, they have been in novels, I would say, for, for a long time. Climate themes have been worked through um, in TV and in film, a lot less so. And if we have appeared, particularly climate activists, we have been cast in the role of uh, eco-terrorists as opposed to genuine community activists. Um, that's not to say that there isn't a role for eco-sabotage but Hollywood's obsession with eco-sabotage I think far outweighs the number of people who are actually participating in these actions and I think that's an important thing to think about. What I think Don't Look Up got absolutely right is that I I agree that the climate crisis is a comedy and I think that's That's relatively kind of controversial in the climate movement. There is a a tendency to think about it as an ongoing tragedy. But I think there is something innately hilarious about the political junction in which we find ourselves now, in that the world has been turned completely upside down, and we find ourselves as ordinary people, as activists who are so... Unused to power, to thinking about power, to thinking about politics, to think about the way that we want to order our world. We're being asked to do that because it's quite clear now that the politicians have failed, that business leaders have failed. And so even if you're a kind of mild social democrat, you're now looking towards activists and people on the periphery for that kind of leadership. And to be honest, if we're going to be really blunt with ourselves about our own limitations we don't always have the skills and the experiences to do that. And I think there is something hilarious about that. I think there is something funny about the figure of the activist who is continually striving to do better and better and better, and who probably in their own lifetimes won't achieve their aims, right? That's like, that's to me, the archetypal sitcom character. When you look at someone like Basil Faultley, it's like you're, you're always striving for something that you're never going to attain. And that's what being an activist is. And so I think they've got it spot on there i have my own critique of don't look up and i just didn't think it was that great like i thought it was fine i thought it was just fine what it was doing and i'm i'm grateful for it to have been one of the first films to do that and i'm looking forward to many many films like that and then the final thing i would say on that that point lucy and and, and it's this is that i think most people do care I, I the one of the few things I didn't like about Don't Look Up was what I think of as quite an old narrative of you know, scientists wailing at the general public of just, just follow the science, just follow the science, follow the science. And I think it's worth us as climate activists reflecting on why that hasn't worked, actually. And and I think there are many reasons for that, and of course, and they're nuanced and complicated. But one of the reasons is that people do understand this on a a kind of bodily level and on a kind of day-to-day, everyday level, right? Like if you are living in an area where air pollution is bad and, you know, our our government routinely breaks the law on air pollution, you you understand that that is not good for your community. You understand that your community, which, you know, will be a poorer community, which will have a higher BME representation, you, you understand that these are deep, Interwoven with social, racial, economic justice issues. The problem, of course, is like what you do about it. And I think, I hope some narratives like don't look up are going to move from just screaming at people to wake up, to look up, and instead transition to how can we empower people to act once they've looked up, once they've started to think about it? How are we going to empower ordinary communities? to step into that power and to take ownership of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's really interesting because I think one of the failings of the films for me was that the only response was rioting yeah. in a kind of meaningless way without a kind of, you know, as, as if it, that, that's just a kind of reactive thing as opposed to an, an organised kind of response or the idea that you could imagine people having an organised response. So I, I, I think... I think that's that's right. I do think people care, but I think it's also about you know a world which is so radically unequal.
2: Mm. Yes.
1: That yes. The, the the perception of more being taken away from people who have nothing.
0: Yeah.
1: Is 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 one of the big obstacles that we have to address because that you know it's not that, that that's not the problem, is it? It's it's not people who have nothing. Um. It's it's wealth. It's wealth, and it's the wealthy.
2: It is, and I think, you know, that's also worth thinking about in terms of the, the things that Hollywood will greenlight, right? And I, I know the, the film's creators have good politics or they aspire to um, having a political analysis of the crisis, and, and I, I, I understand that filmmaking is hard and you're continually making compromises, but I don't think it's a mistake that one of the biggest films to be ever made about climate change doesn't really have an analysis of inequality baked into it right that most of the main characters are white privileged americans right then and, and it's very concerned with that as a area of terrain I, I i know it's i know it's a very basic point to to make because obviously sam it's a metaphor but Climate change isn't like an asteroid hitting. It's much more slow than that. It's much more pernicious. It's going to affect some people way more than it's going to affect others. It is already killing some people while most of us live our lives happily, not thinking about the deaths that are happening every single day. The the global inequities baked into climate crisis, which of course are, are part of the ongoing crises of capitalism, that it's very difficult to point at that and go it's like an asteroid and 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 you're absolutely right that that, that is kind of our job now as activists is to make that more nu- and it, it's not even I was going to say more nuanced it's not even more nuanced because it's just fucking obvious right it's like well obviously this is what the climate crisis is like this is obviously how it's felt we have to make the case that these lives are worth sticking up for if we're going to say black lives matter then let's actually act like black lives matter because at the moment our systems and our politicians are quite happy to sacrifice millions of black people for the sake of some short-term profit.
0: Yeah. And I haven't actually seen the film, although I feel like I have because there have been so many um, you know, people commenting <laughs> online and that, but um, I think you both spot on. Uh, specifically on this point, you know, Hollywood may highlight an issue, but they're certainly not the arbiters of how to solve an issue. And a friend of mine said that, you know, it was actually gave a better sort of critique than, than you, Sam. She enjoyed it more than you, I think. But mm. what she did say was, in a way, what she was saying is, if, if you want to see how shallow it is, there's actually a website that goes with the film about how to, in quotes, sort of save the world. And it's very much incremental, individual bullshit, change your light bulbs type bullshit, you know, and that, that is the, that, to me, that's the whole, that's the key to these sorts of things. It, it, it's a spotlight for a moment in time on a massive issue that breaks through to the mainstream. Cause I had people that, you know, in my, in my area up in North Manchester, they're not environmentally environmentally conscious contacting me and saying, have you seen this film? It's about climate change. And it kind of focuses the mind for a moment but then there's nothing behind it, and all that yeah. energy dissipates so um yeah I, I you know I'm pretty sure that I, I would agree with with the period when um if and when I do see it I'm not even sure if I'm gonna see it now but um <laughs> so I would like to sort of move move uh, track if I could like i said in the intro one of the things that's really impressed me uh with you especially on social media is that I find you're a very astute commentator on the climate movement, so I was wondering if if you could if you could sort of look back on twenty twenty one with us, with me and Lucy. I know it's a big question. Yeah. About the climate movement as a whole. Listen, we're in as much shit now as we ever were, but was he, was he elements of the climate movement that you thought did well in 2021? And also as well, I know you've touched on COP26, but it was also the labor conference where, you know, activists have been trying to hardwire the green new deal into, into labor policies. Um, you know, as someone who's quite thoughtful and, and, and a, deep, a deep personality, when you're reflecting on 2021, yeah, what are your thoughts?
2: My Okay, So my, my, my big personal reflection from last year, and I'm just going to leave it as a question, is I'm quite sick and tired of organising around other people's events. I... Did a lot of work around the Labour Party Conference and I did a lot of work around COP26. And I think both of those pieces of work were important and they led to important changes. And I wouldn't not do them again. But if every year is like that, we are going to run into a lot of problems. You know, one of one of the challenges now for the climate movement and the labor movement is to think about how we're going to shape the agenda, not just respond to the agenda. But you're right, we had had lots of things happen, right? We had the Green New Deal motion pass again at the Labour Party conference, which was really, really good to see. The Socialist Green New Deal motion, as put forward by Labour for a Green New Deal, and others passed almost unanimously, didn't even need to go to a card vote in the end. I was there working with Momentum, running a campaign to globalise that and to embed climate justice into the heart of that. And so it was really good to see some of our wording on debt cancellation get into the final motion and to really internationalise the Green New Deal. Because, to be frank, that's also something that Labour has struggled with. Um, uh, So that that, that personally was very exciting to see a commitment to internationalising with a commitment to climate refugees in there as well. There is only so much we can do, right, in, in these spaces. And I think it is also important to be honest with ourselves and say, look, what one of the biggest things to come out of the Labour Party conference is nothing to do with what motions passed, because as we know, leaders can ignore motions uh, as they come and go. Um, the question now is how do you respond to the leadership changes that they made, the rule changes? which makes it so much harder for a socialist to be elected Labour, leader of the Labour Party. And it makes an eco-socialist argument in the Labour Party a lot trickier. And maybe we can get on to talking about that. I think one of the answers is to look at how we can turn the Green New Deal into something that is also a bottoms-up grassroots project, not just coming from the top. But parking that for a moment... We then had a kind of similar experience, if you like, at COP26, which was similarly an unsatisfactory conference from the people at the top. Um, And I've written a lot about the problems there, and I won't go into them here. But one of the really encouraging things about COP26 was what happened at the grassroots, on the streets. We saw coalitions being knitted together from all across our different movements, right? the cleansing workers in glasgow were on strike at the time and we saw lots of climate activists coming down and being on the picket lines with workers standing hand in hand with trade unionists and then trade unionists turning up to the big rallies for climate justice and all of these movements finding their links working on those links and i think the beginning of a very very exciting moment now was the action that we took in Glasgow enough? No. Did our message cut through? And was it good? I think, I think so. And I think it's got a lot better as well. And I think there is something to be celebrated in the journey that the climate movement has gone on, in particular over the last couple of years. You know, if you think back to when we started Extinction Rebellion in 2018 and all of the left-wing critiques of the messaging that we were putting out, which was very emblematic of where the environmental movement was at the time, right? It was just a kind of mainstreamed common sense that one should be apolitical about climate change. We're now in a very, very different place, and it is important to kind of stand back and, and look at the The ideological success uh, that the left has made. We have have been successful in winning a lot of arguments. It is now common sense in the climate movement among even my most apolitical friends that we should nationalise the energy industry, for example. Now that that they wouldn't have said that three years ago. That's That's an argument I think internally we've kind of won. And there are lots of examples that you can point to like that. So the challenge now for us is to go, okay. So the climate movement has changed, the labor movement's in a very different place, and tactically, strategically, we're in a very different place as well. How can the how, how can these movements start working together in a way that we ensure or, or, or do our, or try our very hardest to bring about decarbonisation at a very, very quick pace?
1: I think what you say about the kind of grassroots element of this is really important. And and I, I think um as, as somebody who was a candidate uh, in the general election in 2019 and is now focused on trade union work, yep. sort of, and, 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 and this and sort of green, green activism really is that, I, I, I do think that there's a lot of change that can take place outside of those kinds of formal structures. Yep. Um, you know, And I, I think getting too wound up about those as, as well can sometimes be something that diverts attention away from where you can actually do some really really good work and affect change and 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 certainly sort of win win a narrative but I'm really interested in I suppose you you know maybe maybe you're talking more about both your experience in Extinction Rebellion and that idea of kind of direct action and 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 what that means and the kind of stakes involved in that right because Mm. it's quite significant when you have groups of people who are prepared to get arrested and or and and so on and people who who are making that sort of decision but but also perhaps to um it would be good to hear what you have to say about um groups like insulate britain whose actions were certainly construed really really negatively and constructed in really really negative ways in the media you know and all of the kind of performed stagey kinds of walkouts or you know and 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 and, or or kind of you know having people on and um on um, news shows who then kind of stop an interview or don't engage, all of that kind of stuff, seem to be about presenting an image of that kind of direct action and indirect environmental action as belonging to groups of people who definitely weren't like ordinary viewers or ordinary readers. And so it, it would be good to know what you think about sort of Interlate Britain in, in particular, but also the relationship between Interlate Britain and Extinction Rebellion
2: yeah i mean I, th- I think that's spot on in the sense that I think insulate Britain is a symptom of extinction rebellion, and it's a symptom of the story and the decline of uh, the lack of strategy at the moment at the heart of extinction rebellion is basically where it's come out of and I'll talk about that in a moment but but thinking just about insulate Britain for a moment what and 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 and, and just before I say anything else, I should say that I fully support and admire the brave activists taking action with Insulate Britain. I count some of them as very close friends. Um, I've got two good friends who are currently in prison. Um, and, w- you know, my own personal misgivings about some strategy have nothing to do with the, the love I feel for those individuals. Um, Insulate Britain, as a campaign, came out of Extinction Rebellion and it came out of a kind of frustration that an element of Extinction Rebellion had with not feeling like the ferocity with which they needed to move with the urgency which they felt was being allowed and given space. And so they decided to splinter and to focus very much on disrupting the everyday lives of people. And this kind of comes out of a lot of the thinking that influenced Extinction Rebellion right at the very beginning of Extinction Rebellion. It it very quickly moved away from that, much to the frustration of these activists. But it was founded on principles of wanting to jam transport networks and therefore make it impossible for cities to cope and also to maximise the number of arrests. And insulate Britain, if you like, is a kind of petri dish of both of those things taken to uh, its logical conclusion. Unfortunately, what you kind of end up then having is like 30 people who are willing to get arrested again and again and again and again, and it's not building a mass movement, and maybe it doesn't need to in order to achieve its aims if 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 all it's aiming to do is to get on Good Morning Britain, well, you know, insulate Britain has succeeded, right? It's, it's got cut through. It's certainly got noticed. It's got picked up by, as you say, a lot of right-wing channels, which have spanned it in a certain way as well. The, the, the limitations of, of that approach are obviously that you have people who get immediately turned off who would be sympathetic to the cause. And a lot of activists have very good replies to that, and I won't get into that kind of debate now. But just a kind of personal anecdote from my life. The other day I was... On set with another actor who was complaining about Extinction Rebellion and in Insulate Britain and he didn't know that I'd helped set up Extinction Rebellion and that was like lovely when you when you get a chance to have a real honest conversation with somebody unfiltered about something that you've been very involved in so I was asking him lots of questions about why he felt they were annoying and his argument was well they're targeting ordinary people and not where power is and I don't disagree with that as an analysis. You know, I lost track of the amount of times in Extinction Rebellion where I said, why aren't we targeting the banks? Why aren't we targeting the fossil fuel companies? Why aren't we shutting down the constituency offices of conservative MPs? You know, we know who the villains are of this fight, right? And there's no good pretending that the ordinary people are what's standing in our way. And I don't think, by the way, that a lot of people do. And I think a lot of this argument can get quite flattened out and simplistic, but that at its heart is where Insulate Britain has come from. Okay, so like zooming out then, and let's talk about Extinction Rebellion, which I think it's important to say was the, was, was the single activist group that was in the climate space in 2018 that was putting forward non-violent direct action at the scale that it was advocating. Um, And that is an important thing to just acknowledge, in that the radicalism of Extinction Rebellion's strategy um, was pretty much unmatched by most other groups that were even engaging in direct action and civil disobedience. The wave of civil disobedience and direct action tactics that we've seen since um, has been largely due to Extinction Rebellion revitalizing that and re-energizing that. A lot of, for example, the activists that are involved now in the Palestine action, Actions and protests come from Extinction Rebellion. Um, And that's one of the really exciting things about movement ecologies, where you can train up activists, where you can uh, show that tactics are worth doing. And not only does the climate movement benefit from that, but so does the various other movements that are fellow travelers in the same struggle. Extinction Rebellion's big problem, as we all know is that it was trying to be apolitical, and it lacked an ideological centre. And without an ideological centre, it was very, very good at mobilising very quickly and mobilising a lot of people at pace. But beyond that, when we had nominally achieved a lot of our first three demands, it was kind of unable to reorientate itself. And that was partly for other reasons, such as the structure, such as lack of democracy, of accountability, whatever. But fundamentally in 2019, we, we won, right? And, 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 and we can argue over exactly how and to what extent. But the three main demands of Extinction Rebellion were to tell the truth, to declare a climate emergency, to decarbonize by 2025, and to set up a Citizens Assembly. At the end of two weeks of rolling protest, the UK Parliament declared a climate emergency. The UK Parliament commissioned a citizens' assembly on climate change. And by the end of that year, the Labour Party had passed the Green New Deal policy, which had enshrined 2030 as a net zero date. And the government had committed finally to 2050. And importantly, the polls showed that way more people, the majority of people, agreed with Extinction Rebellion as opposed to the government. Now, that slid back because there hasn't been that level of opposition since, because Keir Starmer's Labour Party has not been good at showing the urgency of the situation. And so that's now slid back. A lot of people now say 2050 is fine. But at the time, so in, in 2019, it's really important to remember this, in 2019, the opinion polls, and sure, their opinion polls to take them with a bit of a pinch of salt, showed that more people agreed with Extinction Rebellion than they did with the government. So basically, we'd won, Right. And the sensible thing to do then would be to either shut Extinction Rebellion down and say it achieved what it was meant to achieve. It woke people up. And now is the time for a different movement to come along with better politics and to re-energize and revitalize this space or to get three new demands. And that's what me and a lot of other people were fighting for at the time. We said, look, we've got to now have three quite political demands. And I can't remember exactly what we were advocating, but, you know, they were, your kind of, you know, let's just say they were very similar to a Green New Deal type eco-socialist platform. We lost that debate internally, but the problem for Extinction Rebellion as a movement, if I'm just going to separate it from my own feelings for a moment, was that everyone lost that debate internally. Basically, what happened was a vagueness, a vagueness of strategy, which just went, let's kind of stumble on. And so Extinction Rebellion now is at a stage where it's just stumbling on with the same old strategy. And sure, to be fair, the pandemic has not helped, but it is losing ground, you know, day after day after day. And a lot of people are becoming disillusioned with it. And so it faces really important questions now about its own future. And indeed, that kind of debate over whether to just pack up and go home is is restarting again. I saw recently that one of the founders, Stu, has said, I think it would be good if we held a big ceremony in London in which we say this is the last protest that Extinction Rebellion is going to organise and then we're handing it over to the climate justice movement to take that space. And I think there are people there that will take that space, by the way. You know, I think the COP26 coalition in Glasgow was a really important precursor to the kind of justice movements that we're going to see emerge. But unfortunately, people are still living in a kind of paradigm where we believe it's important to ask permission to be the next climate movement. And we on the left need to understand that actually, some of these movements are going to be here for a very long time. Like, we can't wait for Extinct Rebellion to decide to disband itself. A lot of us on the left have to start thinking very, very seriously about what comes next. And we need to be at the heart of shaping that. And at the moment, we're not. And that's not just because we have like ideological disagreements with the people who are. It's also because a lot of us aren't putting in the work that we need to. And I know that's a kind of, you know, I don't I don't want to be, you know, berating people for not putting in enough effort. But if we don't put ourselves at the centre of these movements, if we're not prepared to have those debates, if we're not prepared to do the hard work of movement building, then, of course, we're not going to see the movements that we need to see. And so, you know, sorry, this is a, this is a very lo- long ramble because it's my favourite subject. As you can probably imagine, I spent two years of my life in Extinction Rebellion. I got arrested for them. I spent a lot of time in court. I, you know, it's something I care so, so, so much about. And I care so much about the future of these movements. But they've got some very big questions to face up to. It's the same thing that's happening in the youth strikes at the moment. They're really thinking about, what are the efficacy of these ongoing strikes? How can we reorientate these strikes to be more meaningful? And, you know, that's the question that all of us as activists have to keep on asking. It will be really interesting to see where it goes.
1: I mean, it's it's so interesting listening to you because we interviewed um, a, a guy from Greenpeace a while ago and we were talking to him about, I mean, I'm really interested in the ways in which different organisations are actually organised and their democratic or not structures and how decisions get made. And um, he basically described this incredibly hierarchical, disciplined, top-down mechanism where somebody decides what it is, this one thing that they're all going to focus on. And every single Greenpeace person focuses on this one thing to, to, to make change happen, but they don't, they, they, they're not involved in determining what that one thing is.
0: Yes.
1: A group of people do. And when you describe the kind of, when, when, when I listen to you talk about Extinction Rebellion, it seems like there's, there's, here's a group where there are lots of different ideas going on, but there's, it it doesn't sound from what you're saying that there, there are good structures for actually working out and determining how things then carry on or move forward and yeah. I, and and it would be interesting to you know what we'd like to, you to sort of talk a bit more about now is kind of what you want to see going forward and you know what you'd like to happen this year and um, but also those questions of strategy and how far do you think we are um we, we're kind of held back by um by by not having good mechanisms for making collective decisions yep. and for sort of participative, um, you, know, a, a, you know, kind of involvement in that?
2: I mean, I think a lot is the, is, is, is the honest answer. And I think it's such a shame when movements don't feel like they need democratic engagement because that's what movements thrive on. There is also an argument to be said about just going out and doing things, right? Like we can't all sit in... 10,000 long, uh, many people's Zoom meetings and discuss exactly how the revolution is going to happen. Sometimes you just have to go out and start doing things and we need to be, I think, a little bit better too at just appreciating that and trying to connect the dots, not just micromanage them. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 that's part of the struggle. That's part of what being an activist is, is to building healthy democratic discourse between people and I don't think you know the tenor of social media helps here particularly with having those constructive conversations but when you sit most people down in person and most activists down in person you'll find out that you know they have so much in common right and the more that we can do to bring together those two parts of the eco-socialism The better the 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 real challenge, I think, for 2022 is, as you say, strategy, is working out exactly what. And I think, you know, by the way, I think this is extra parliamentary strategy. I think this is outside of. I think I think what we really need direction in is what activism looks like from the grassroots, Um, and that's also where we're going to have most impact. I think you know we haven't really talked about the internal turmoil of the Labour Party but my own feeling is that you know you you can spend a lot of your time on those debates if you want to and it's good that we have good comrades doing so but we also need to realise the power and the strength of shaping debate from the outside and admit that sometimes that's better not only can we engage in our own projects concentrate on our own issues embed ourselves in our own communities but we will also end up having a lot of influence you know like it's I think it's an easy example to pick because in 2019 so much happened the the school strikes the extinction rebellion marches and occupations really changed a lot but you know one of the things I always talk to people about who are not very sold into the idea of eco-socialism or systemic change which I devoutly believe in is getting them to just think a little bit about the function of such movements even in a social democratic frame and say is was this an important thing to happen did it did it lead to good things happening in your own community in your workplace and the answer usually is yes because and this is a failure of our own activism in terms of this is a failure of Okay, well, if I'm someone who you know believes in revolutionary socialism, I didn't bring about a revolution. What I brought about was a kind of event which triggered loads of different workplaces to think more about recycling and to <laughs> get loads of community um, churches to think about where they were investing their money and to get loads of funds to think about where they were directed. Do, do you know what I mean? Like the, the the repercussions from such movements exist beyond their own revolutionary frame. And that's something to always bear in mind, I think, is that you can remain true to yourself, remain true to your own ideology. You can still fight for system change outside of parliament and also be aware that at the same time, you might just be helping to further the cause of progressives across the board. And that's a good thing.
0: Yes, and much of what you said there about XR really resonated with me. Um, I was part of, say, for want of a better phrase, the first class of Manchester XR. Mm. Um, so I've been into the first four um, direct actions in London and I was also part of a, a direct action in Manchester, which was which was actually really good. Um, what I took from XR was, um, on a positive level, was I really liked the idea that you could have a, a big group but then create small groups of people who wanted to do an action. Yeah, you just all get together, who wants to get involved, and, and a week later you do an action, you know, you'd ruffle feathers, and you, and, and, and I yeah. thought that was really good. I've tried to bring that thinking into um, integrating Manchester Labour for Green New Deal and work that we do there. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really refreshing and quite liberating. Yeah. But um, in one of your essays, you say that, you know, revolutions cannot be micromanaged. And you actually say sometimes you have to be impulsive, surprising, say, fuck it, let's see what happens. Yeah and I can and I agree with that but I think one of the flaws of extinction rebellion and you've touched on it as well so I think we're going to agree here is that the the, large, the as individuals or small groups yeah you know this sort of fuck it attitude and let's just see what sticks you know is empowering but I think there's a responsibility when it's a larger group and I think what you have to have is you have to have a foundational stones, you know, either ideological ones or you know something that you can all agree on is a, is the foundation of what your action is is going to be and why it's going to be such. Um, and I found that extinction was 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 slightly flaky in that department. There was no real, there was no socialist backbone to it. It was just about it was literally just lots of groups trying to see what sticks. And I did think that was was a flaw. Um, you also write about you know people should do. You get the best out of people when they do it for the love of it. You know, mm. they do, it's something that they love. Yeah. But there's also dirty work to be done in, ma- in mass movement mobilization. There is there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and it's not it's not fun to do, but it's important. So I'm just wondering if what you think about this idea of actually having a having foundation stones and anchors that anchors the group. Yeah. So that you can trust people to go and do an action, and for it not to go horribly wrong. Listen, there's, there's no blueprint for success. Yeah, I would like to at least have an educated guess or an educated or sort of a, an agreement, an unwritten rule about why or how actions are done. And I think that's probably what was missing. Um, and also, at your ideas around doing the dirty work as well. What, what's some of your ideas around that?
2: Yeah, I think, I think. That's all interesting, and I think, you know, the climate and ecological emergency can often be used to justify just about anything, right? You can make the moral case for a lot of actions being justified as a result of. And so often in Extinction Rebellion, you would hear an action being proposed and then being opposed on quite interesting or nuanced or complicated grounds and the reply to that just being, it's an emergency, this is what we need to do. And that being the end of the conversation. And because it was a network which allowed people and empowered people, and you know, I, I do think that's important, as you say, empowering people to go out and take action, under the name of Extinction Rebellion, as long as you were acting non-violently, um, because it allowed people to do that, it... Meant that these actions just kind of happened, unless there was huge opposition, and that opposition often not coming from a kind of democratic body, but rather a kind of personal connection. Say, so I don't know to kind of ground this in ex- an example. Right, one of the famous actions from Extinct Rebellion, which always cuts through, is the Canning Town action, where some activists from Extinct Rebellion jump on the top of a train carriage in Canning Town and get pulled down by commuters. Um, and it's quite clearly a stupid action, not only for the reasons that I was outlining before with Insulate Britain targeting ordinary people, um, but also the optics of such an action was, you know, quite frankly, bizarre. Um, and it's also important to say that, like, only about 10 people thought that was ever going to work, Right. Uh, A year before that happened, uh, you know, me and my friend Fahana were coordinating the political strategy of the April rebellion. So the one with the big pink boat, that's what we coordinated. And during that second week, we were told by the same group that they had persuaded members of the movement to go and glue themselves onto underground tube carriages. Um, And we asked them whether they'd thought about any kind of risk assessment, any idea of, <laughs> you know, en- en- anything more than just an idea. And, uh, you know, we were called reformists and all sorts of awful words for suggesting that maybe gluing yourself to a tube carriage wasn't the best idea and might m- mean that the movement was associated with, you know, I mean, let's just be blunt. I think we would have been described as a terror organization, right? Um, And I think it would have led to people having panic attacks in block tube carriages. And I think it would have done, I think it almost certainly would have killed the movement. That action would have happened in that week or if many of us within the movement, very high up in the movement, hadn't threatened to walk out, right? That's not the sign of a healthy democratic structure or democratic relations and decision making processes. And unfortunately, that's the alternative a lot of the time to actually having democracy, is just people butting heads up against one another. And let me tell you, just like, just from a, an emotional point of view, that is so draining. And you end up carrying the weight of it on the individual as opposed to sharing it equally across the movement. And so just from a kind of activist burnout perspective even democracy is important democracy is healthy both for the individual and for the movement and so that's a really important thing that we've got to keep on fighting for I think you know it's it's important that we fight for it in terms of a national structure but also on the local also in our own organizing is to is to to say, look, yeah, I, 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 I learned so much from Extinction Rebellion. I learned so much from the way in which we organize. I think the left needs to learn a lot from the way in which Extinction Rebellion organized. I think we need to empower ourselves way more to just go out and do stuff. But do we all need to think about accountability and about democracy a lot more at the same time? Yes, we do. We need to live our values, right? In Extinction Rebellion, we were often asking for and talking about reform of democracy of revolutionizing democracy and we couldn't even do it in our own organization and when you're failing in your own organization to implement the changes that you want to see in the world you know that's that's the moment where you pause and you reflect a little bit and you think okay what can we do differently here
0: yeah so sam just before we end i think the big question really is you know where do we put our energies in your in your opinion you know and our focus in 2022? um first of all
2: the police bill um we have to oppose the police bill with everything that we've got it's an assault on human rights civil liberties the right to protest the nationality and borders bill uh, another extremely bad piece of legislation currently going through parliament we are being hit around the head at the moment with bad pieces of legislation with legislation that you know, almost certainly contravenes human rights protocol. What are they doing about that? Well, of course, they're going to now try and scrap the Human Rights Act. We're in a very, very worrying time. And quite honestly, people trying to do anything that they can do to fight back against that is enough and is good. For my own piece, if I was to, you know, be so bold as to recommend people do something, it's to get involved in social movement politics. It's to allow yourself the opportunity to go, these are people who I agree with, that I'm going to organize with, and I'm just going to do stuff. And if that means your local community mutual aid group, then so be it. And if that means the uh, COP26 coalition, then so be it. You know, one of one of the things we don't have time for now is for people to join bad groups. <laughs> one of the things that really stuck with me over COP26 is I went to one of the... Um, COP26 coalitions um, talks that they did and Assad who I know you've had on the show before and w- is a, an immense yeah, leader Assad. a huge leader of this movement and you know a lot of respect for him one of the things he said was look join a good movement you know join a good movement we you know we don't have time for people anymore to join bad movements and you know look I'm someone who believes that you learn a lot from being in compromise movements and learn a lot just from doing anything. But, you know, from somebody to another, I don't know if anyone's listening to this, that is just thinking about dipping their toe for the first time into the pool of activism is have a look at what's out there. And if what out there isn't like totally what you are aligned with, do it yourself. Start it. Have conversations with your friends. Talk about how you can set it up. Talk about how you can do it and get out and show up and go to those protests for the police bill, because that's what we need to
0: oppose. Yeah, definitely. Um, One of my favorite essays that you've written um, was one on sort of your thoughts on charterist poems. And I'm doing some work at the moment um, on a series called Working Class Voices, where I'm trying to sort of engage working class people in the movement. And um, I'm just wondering for the last question, when you read, well, when I read those poems, they're really analogous to (laughs) the fight that we are facing now. Um, and I'm wondering if there was, as you've read them and you've done deep dives in them, if there's anything like from our ancestors that you feel we can pull out of those of those historical movements that can galvanize us or or guide us um today, that's so exciting, adam that' but you've, that you've well, you've read
2: that, thanks for reading it. and um loved it. and thank you and and also that you brought it up because you're you're absolutely right, right? So that piece is a piece about Chartist poetry at the end of the Chartist movement. So the Chartist, for anyone who's listening and doesn't know, a movement who were asking for the vote, for emancipation, for working-class men at the time, um, and were fighting that in the streets and petitioning um, and through various other means. And around this movement comes a huge body of literature and cultural work, uh, a huge amount of periodicals spring up. And what was interesting to me as someone who approaches this from, as an actor and a writer is that poetry was at the heart of this movement, right? And I think sometimes we, we allow ourselves to ignore the cultural a little bit too much on the left. And we have to remember that we are cultural beings and we need good stories and we need to be inspired by poetry. And that's what they really got, these Chartists. They really understood that people wanted to chant and they wanted to sing and they wanted to read good poems. And so on a lot of these periodicals on the very front page, even on the Northern Star, which was the biggest periodical at the time, was a poetry column. And very often the poems that they printed were by anonymous poets, by working class poets, by autodidacts that had never written poetry before, but had thought, well, this is what we're doing. This is part of the movement. This is part of the work. And so on the poetry columns of these periodicals, you get these debates, all of these conversations that we've been talking about over the last hour of like, where do we go next? Where do we put our energy? What happens now? All of that gets played out through poetry. And they're beautiful. And I really urge people to go and read them. Unfortunately, they're not taken seriously by the academic community because they're unknown working class poets. But they are full of passion and love for the world and for each other. And the preoccupation with the future and what the future brings was what always struck me as the most significant thing, right? This is a movement that was in its dying days, and very aware that it was in its dying days. One of the leading poets talks about going away and burying chartism. Bury it well, you know, be grateful that it happened. They were very aware that it was on the decline. And yet they were also, through their poetry, prefiguring what was going to come next. And they talked about the coming day, the smiles of the future, the sun, the song of the future. And that song of the future, that feeling of being able to attain utopia, of being able to, at the same time, addressing your material circumstances in the present, and also to have one eye on the better, kinder, greener, more sustainable future that we are all imagining and hoping and trying to bring about, that is what inspires me. And I think that's what inspires other people, that fixation with utopia. And so, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so pleased you brought that up because that's exactly what we also need right now is for all my talk about strategy, we need to remember why we're doing this and we need to constantly ground ourselves in the hope and the power and the love of what our vision for a better world is.
0: Yeah, mate, 100%. In fact, I loved it so much. I'm actually going to end with a poem because it's such oh, a high highbrow uh, you know podcast this one's (laughs) called for the future written in 1853 by wj linton for the future we are building for the future do we plan how today may best be wielding all the varied powers of man even the last one duly prized all their differings harmonized sam it's been great to have you on the show mate really appreciate your time tonight This is a part of the show that's dedicated to the fighters, the healers and the conserves of the world that are doing their bit for all of us. It's the shout out. Sam, who have you got for us this week, mate? Um,
2: I think I'm going, well, actually, to be fair, before I said I should, I should say my flatmate. <laughs> I have COVID at the moment and she's been cooking me dinner every day. Um, and so I'm very grateful to her. But for the climate movement, I really recommend everyone read um, Corolla Riquette's book which is called The Time to Act is Now. And I can send you a link. It's available for free download on Rosa Luxemburg's website. And a lot of you might know Corolla. She um, got arrested, I think, in 2019. 20, oh, I can't remember now. 2019, I think, if I was to hazard a guess, um, for docking illegally um, a boat of uh, refugees uh, in Italy um, and ended up being found not guilty um, of that crime. Um, it's, it's a beautiful book. It's a very personal book about her own journey through... I'm, I'm, I met Krola through Extinction Rebellion and it talks about her activism and how she connected the climate struggle to the struggle for economic and racial justice and her work with refugee charities and you know if we need any kind of story like that right now it's 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 one of those so that would be my recommendation is if anyone wants to feel inspired go read that book it's so inspiring brilliant
0: thank you so much for that okay and a big thank you to everyone that is listening and remember if you're helping the planet in any way we love you we appreciate you and we hope you'll join us again next time take care everyone
2: We'd like to thank all our supporters on Patreon, with a special thanks to Barbara Burke, Guermund, and Angela Brown. If you're enjoying the show and want to help it grow, but not in an infinite ecological disaster kind of way, head to patreon.com forward slash mcrgndpod.